points. Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through to verse 22. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. See, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So why then was the law given at all? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Was the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Right, well, hopefully, uh, if you've been tracking with us through Galatians, uh, one thing is abundantly clear, and that is that the, the salvation, God's commitment to redeem this world, to restore it, uh, God's commitment to save people, has always, always, always been about the gospel. Okay, right from Genesis chapter 3, and the seed that was promised right back at the beginning, as it were. That seed was promised again to Abraham, uh, that that seed would come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That that seed would crush the head of Satan. That that seed would liberate us from the curse. That that seed would be the one through whom the nations of the world are blessed. That it would always be about Him. It would always be about trusting in Him. It was always about faith. It's always been about us believing that Jesus is who He said He is, that He has done what He has said He he would do, and that He will do what He says He will do. It has always, always, always been about Jesus. And it's never been about us being good enough. Okay? That's, 
That's, that's it, okay? That's basically all of Galatians so far has been about that. That it's always been about the red line. Remember this from last week. It's always been about the red line. From eternity past to eternity future, it's always been about the promise of Jesus. Yeah? The eternal covenant. We were talk, told about that in, at the end of Hebrews. This covenant that stretches back from eternity past, that stretches forward into eternity future. That it's always been about Jesus who was chosen before the creation of the world, Peter tells us. Before the creation of the world, Jesus was already chosen to be Savior, to be Redeemer. And it has always been about that covenant. Always. All right? If the inheritance depends on the law, and it no longer depends on the promise, but God, in His grace, gave us, gave the church, gave us our inheritance through a promise. All right, that's what this whole section of tonight's reading has been about. That it was always about the promise and nothing, nothing that has happened at any point in the history of eternity or in the history of creation, nothing has changed or can change the fact that God gives us our salvation by His grace as a gift through His promise. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And the law does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Right? That promise was forged within the life of the Trinity. Forged between the Father and the Son. Nothing, nothing can change it. Which, of course, raises then the obvious question for the church at Galatia. Right? If it's always been about the promise, if it was only ever about grace, if it was only ever about faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in that seed who had been promised from Genesis chapter 3, if it was always about grace, then why? What, what was the law got to do with it then? Why was the law even given in the first place? That's the question that Paul knows is burning in the heart of this church. If it's always been about grace, why then is the law given at all? And what we have been hearing all the way through Galatians is that, well, the answer is not for your salvation. Okay, that's not, that is totally off the radar. All right, salvation, that's about the promise. Okay, it's completely not about salvation. All right, so, you know, if it's not about the red line, then why has the law been given? Why was the law given to Moses? Why, for centuries, did it feature in the life of the ancient church. 
Okay? Now, the first thing that Paul wants to make clear to us is that the law, the yellow bit, is radically inferior. This is part of his argument. He's wanting to really underline to the church that the law was never given as a way of us earning our salvation. All right? You sometimes hear that. People sometimes still talk about, well, in the Old Testament, the way you were saved was by keeping the law. But in the New Testament, it's all about grace. And Paul's like, that's completely the wrong way to read the Old Testament. The law was never there so that if you obeyed it well enough, then you would be saved. That's never what it's been about. And he, he wants to argue that it's never been about that. It's like, how can it be about that when it was given through angels? How can it be about salvation when it was entrusted to uh, an intermediary, to Moses? It was like a, human, a mere human being who, who kind of mediated this whole covenant. And Paul's like, you know, it's like three, four times removed from God. You've got God gives it to the angels. It's enacted through Moses. You know, it, it's, it can't be about how we get to God. Right? That's the whole, that's part of his argument. It's, you know, it's, you need to disentangle morality. You need to disentangle obedience. You need to disentangle performance in your head from the question of our relationship with God, how that relationship is brought into being, how that relationship is established, how that relationship is maintained. It's a completely different question. So why is the law given? If it's not given to be used the way the legalist says it should be used, then why is it given? Why have we been given the law? And does it have anything to say to the church anymore? Right? Now, that, that was a, those are big, big questions. Okay? And I want to say that reading a book of the Bible is like watching a box set. All right? Seriously, you, know, you watch the first couple of episodes of a new series, and you're like, I have no idea what's going on. You know, I have more questions than I have answers at this stage. Because to start with, it's just about introducing the characters, setting up the issues, setting up the plot line. And usually you have to wait like five or six series before you actually get the answers that you're wanting. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's how they keep you watching more and more of these episodes. Well, look, I want to say this. When we come to this question tonight of why the law? Why is the law given? All right, don't be expecting all of the answer tonight. All right, tonight's like the first thrilling installment of a great series on why the law was given. So if you walk out tonight with questions, that's okay. All right, that's fine. It's not that I haven't done my job or you know, the Bible hasn't done its job. It's just that actually there's more to come. We're only in chapter 3 there's still three more chapters of Galatians to go, okay? So don't feel like we have to get all the answers tonight. We will, start, we will start to get the answers, but it's going to take us a few weeks to answer this question properly. Why is the law given, okay? That's, that's the question that is at, literally at the heart of tonight's passage. And Paul's answer 
Um, it's deceptively brief, okay? It's going to take us all night just to unpack this. All right. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred, Jesus, had come. All right, so why was the law given? It was given because of transgressions until Jesus had come. Now, great. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that the law was given because, it was added because of transgressions? Does Paul mean that the law was given in order to restrain sin? Does he mean that the law was given in order to stop us becoming as bad as we could have been? Just to keep a lid on the situation until Jesus could get here to sort things out. Let's just keep sin in its box. Stop it doing too much damage. Is that what Paul means when he says that the law was added because of transgressions? Now, it might be tempting for us to think that, except, of course, we've been reading the book of Galatians. So we know that cannot be what Paul means. That cannot be what Paul means. I mean, think about it. What would happen if... That is why the law had been given. What would happen is if, if God's looking, going, right, okay, sin. Um, okay, Jesus, you're going to have to go and deal with that. But until you do, right, I'm going to put the law in, into human experience. And the law is just going to, it's going to contain the situation. It's going to restrain sin. It's going to restrict sin. It's going to keep a lid on it. So it doesn't do too much damage until, Jesus, you're able to go and die on the cross and sort it all out. All right, what would happen if that was the situation? Well, what would happen is this. Our sin would be restrained, and the natural conclusion that we would jump to is, oh, I'm not that sinful. I must be a good person. Because that's the default position of fallen humanity. Right? If the law prevented our sin coming out into the open, if the law buried it or put a lid on it and constrained it and restrained it and kept it hidden down, then we wouldn't see it and we would work on the assumption that we are basically good people. And if we're basically good people, then we don't need a Savior. See, if we're basically good people, then basically we're going to be good enough for God. That's the working theology of fallen humanity. Do you remember we were looking at this a couple of weeks ago, weren't we? When I was just raising the question, what is the worst sin that can be committed? And saying the worst sin that can be committed is trying to be a good person without Jesus. Do you remember that a few weeks back? All right, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that because Paul calls himself, Paul actually calls himself the worst sinner. 
right now, and we'll come back. I'll just raise it for you now. Um, why would he do that? Why would Paul say he is the worst sinner? Now, we might think, oh, it's because he persecuted the church. Well, yeah, but a lot of people have persecuted the church. And there are some people who have killed a lot more Christians than Paul did. So why does Paul say he is the worst sinner? I'm just going to plant that question for you. We'll come back and we'll look at it again in, in a couple of weeks. But it may have something to do with this. That, that, you know, this idea that the worst sin is trying to be a good person without Jesus. So if, we, if the law was given to restrain our sin, if the law was given in order to, in a way that meant we could continue to live with the illusion that we were good people in, in and of ourselves, then the law would be actually opposed to the gospel, wouldn't it? Because the law would be leading us to a conclusion that said, I don't need Jesus. I can be good enough on my own. And that's exactly the issue that Paul's hammering here. Is the law opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. Categorically, no way. It's got no, you know, if, that's how we th- if that's what we think the law is about, Paul says you have completely missed the point of everything that God has been doing in the history of the world. So, what does it mean to talk about the law having been added because of transgressions? Right, well, if we listen to the Apostle Paul, I would suggest to you that there are three things that are are in in, in his answer to this. Um, And they sort of build on each other. That when Paul says the law is added because of transgressions, he's wanting to say there are three things the law does. The first thing is it exposes our sin. The second thing is it exacerbates our sin. And the third thing is it empowers our sin. Do you like that three-point sermon, alliteration? I'm really pleased with that. You're not impressed, are you? You're like, yeah, whatever. Seen it all before. All right. But those are the three things, the three ingredients, if you like, that are mixed up in Paul's answer to the question. Why is the law given? It is added because of transgressions. All right, now, we need to work, work with me on this. I reckon Paul's been at Galatia. He's taught the church at Galatia loads of stuff before the letter to Galatians is ever written. So I think if we take a step back from Galatians a little bit and, and reflect on on Paul's teaching more broadly, then I think we'd be able to get a sense of what it is he's taught the church. All right, And Romans really helps us on this. You see, the first thing that the law does is it exposes our sin. It shows us, rather than restraining it and restricting it and hiding it, what the law actually does is it puts our sin on display. It confronts us with the fact that we are sinners. All right, so it doesn't undermine our sense of needing a Savior. It's actually putting in our face the fact that we need a Savior. All right, there's a a guy here. I need to be really careful about doing this. 
And there's a guy called Ray Comfort, which is like, like one of the coolest names in the world, isn't it? I mean, Ray Comfort. Hey. All right, he's an Australian guy. Now, I need to say, he's a pretty eccentric guy. Um, and he's quite complicated in a lot of ways. I'm not, I'm not endorsing everything that he says at all. He's quite a controversial figure. Um, but he, he's an evangelist. Um, uh, there was, and there was something I heard. This is about, literally, this is like 20 years ago. I watched a, a sermon of this guy, uh, which you can still, I, I had to look for it on the internet this week. It's still there. It's still on YouTube. Google him and see what you like. See if you can find him. Um, but about 20 years ago, I was watching a sermon on him, and he was talking about why is it that so much of our evangelism is ineffective? Why is it that time after time, we preach the gospel, and people go, well, okay, and walk away? And he was like, why is that? What's happening? And the answer that he gives is this. The, the answer he gives is, that we are telling people they need a savior, but we're not explaining to them what it is they need to be saved from. Now, I thought, oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And, and his answer to this is, he said, before you preach the gospel, preach the law. Because the law, it exposes people's sin. It shows them why they need a Savior. And when you when you've preach the law, then people know they need a Savior. And when, therefore, when you preach Jesus, it makes sense to them. So he's like, long before you tell them about what Jesus came to do, tell them what the law came to do first. All right, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Um, he's like, if, if you understand, you know, this is actually what you have been called to be. This is how you have been called to live. And really confront people with the fact that consistently and in every area, we are failing to be the men and women God has called us to be. Then, then we might begin to recognize why we need Jesus. Now, I think that he gets this from Jesus. It's, it's kind of standard, really. All the good ideas come from Jesus. Do you know what I mean? Um, but this one particularly, I think, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? He, I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus dealing with legalists. All right? So what happens in Luke 10? On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, straight away, you know this isn't going to go well for this guy. All right? If you're testing Jesus, this, is, this conversation is going to come back to bite you. All right? An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked. And listen very carefully to the question. Teacher, he asked. What must I do? Right? The whole question is, the, is, is coming out of the, the heart of a legalist. Tell me what rules I have to keep. Tell me what rituals I have to do. Tell me what I must do in order to receive eternal life. All right? Now, you and I would go, oh, but you don't need to do anything 
just believe in Jesus. Just trust Jesus. Right? That's not what Jesus says. Okay, what does Jesus do? All right, I'm dealing with the legalist. Jesus sends this guy where? To the law. What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? This guy answers, well, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yeah, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Isn't that amazing? That's, Jesus is like, okay, you want to talk about obeying the law? There's the law. Go and do it, and you'll live. Knock yourself out, buddy. Right? Now, and what does the guy say? And listen to this. But the man wanted to justify himself. Isn't that it? He wanted to justify himself. Now, we read that and we think, oh, right, so what... what he, he's like, oh man, everybody thinks I've asked a really stupid question. I better make it sound like it was really cool. And, and so he asks a follow-on question. No, no, no. Listen to what Luke is telling us. This is a legalist. Right? He doesn't want to be justified by God. He wants to justify himself. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus says, okay, you really want to really play this game? Let me tell you who your neighbor is. And at the end of it, what does Jesus say? At the, end of the, at the end of the whole thing, right? Oh, yeah, so he wants to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? Jesus tells this story, and then what's the, what's the, 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 the twist of the knife at the end of all of this? Go and do likewise. If you're going to be a legalist, if you want to, to, to prove to God that you are good enough, if you want your performance ratings to be high enough, I've just told you how to live. If you really want to play that game, go and do it. Go and do it. And the whole thing that Jesus is doing is, he is he's, he's using the law to, to confront this guy and say, you can't do this. All right, the standard is too high. You're supposed to have lived your whole life doing that. You can't justify yourself. You see what Jesus is doing? He's using the law to try to back this guy into a corner. You haven't lived like this, have you? You can't live like this, can you? No, what you need is a savior, not a list of rules. All right, that's what we need to do. The law exposes our sin. But it doesn't just expose sin, the law exacerbates sin. It aggravates it. It stirs it up. All right, Paul again in Romans 5, the law was brought in. Right? The, so that trespass might increase. Right? Don't miss this. It's not like, okay, I'll put the law in there so that it kind of keeps a lid on sin and keeps it under control. It's exactly the opposite. God's like, I'll give them the law and then trust, it'll get worse. 
trespass will get worse. There'll be more sin. Right? We're like, what? Yeah, but think about it. Okay, think about it. Why did God not send Jesus straight away? Have you ever asked that question? You know, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat the, tr- eat, eat the fruit uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 4, the cross. Done. You know, seriously, would not have made so much more sense. Like, why did we have to wait until you know, Matthew chapter 26 and 27 to get to the cross? Why? And I think part of the reason is because if, you know, okay, Genesis 4, Jesus dies on the cross, all right, so the cross can deal with one sin. That's, that's, you know, that's all we would know. That's all we would be able to know for sure. Here it is. One sin, Jesus deals with it. Brilliant. Except my life, <laughs> it's not, uh, not just one sin. My whole life is riddled with sin. There are dark things in my life that I hope never see the light of day. My sin is deep. My sin is complex. My sin is multifaceted. My sin just, it just keeps finding new ways to express itself. All right? So, can the cross deal with my sin? Well, I wouldn't know that if the cross had popped up in Genesis chapter 4, would I? What God does is he gives the law, not to restrain sin, but to ex- ag- aggravate it, to, to, to make sure that sin finds its full expression, that the full horror and complexity of sin is brought out and put on display so that it scars and destroys generation after generation all of creation, so that its roots go as deep as they can until sin has grown and reached its full potential. And then, when we see the horror of sin, when we have lived through the horror of sin, generation after generation, when we have seen the utter destruction and havoc and death and sorrow and misery, then, by one act... Death on the cross, the enormity, the complexity, the totality of sin is utterly vanquished in the cross. And we know, we know whatever my sin is, whatever it looks like, however it articulates itself, we know the death of Jesus is enough. Jesus is glorified and we are given confidence that the death of Christ is adequate. That's Paul's argument in Romans 5. Where sin increased, grace increases all the more. But thirdly, ah, it doesn't just expose our sin. It doesn't just exacerbate our sin. The law 
empowers our sin. All right? It's, you see, the law isn't just like, okay, well, you know, I've shown that you're, you're a sinner. Because we could still, we would still, we would still convince ourselves we don't need, need a Savior. All right? We would still be like, well, you know, okay, so I'm not perfect. Bit rough around the edges, but basically, deep down inside, I'm still a good person. In spite of all the evidence to the contrary, that was still what we would say. And so the law doesn't just expose my sin. It doesn't even just aggravate it and exacerbate it. It empowers my sin so that, so that it, 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 it imprisons me. It enslaves me. It, it locks up everything under its control. You see, when the law really does its work, I am left realizing that I can't ever do anything but sin. I am locked up, overpowered, enslaved by sin. And again, that's something that I think Paul draws from Jesus. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. All right, we've got to see that that sin is like a tyrant that rules over us with utter ruthlessness. The law backs us into a corner. When the law really does its work, and, and, and I say that because I think for many of us, we've never allowed the law to do this. We've never meditated deeply on the reality of our sin and our failure to keep the law, to be the people God has called us to be. But when we do it, backs us into a corner. Uh, it, it, it leaves me knowing I am a sinner and there is nothing, there is nothing I can do to change that. I am controlled by sin, enslaved by it, dominated by sin. It's all I ever do. It's all I ever can do. See, the law is like a It's like a thermometer, right? You might be feeling a bit rough, but you don't really know how sick you are until you take your temperature, you know? And and that's what the law does. It, 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 It takes our temperature. I mean, a thermometer, it can't do anything to bring your temperature down. Do you know what I mean? It it doesn't do anything to heal you. What it does do is show you, you need to go to a doctor. You're sicker than you thought. You felt you were a bit rough, all right? But seriously, you need more than a couple of paracetamol here. And that's what the law does. The law shows us how sinful we are. And it says, buddy, you need, you need a savior. You can't do this on your own. You need Jesus. Is the law opposed to the gospel? Absolutely not. The law is the perfect 
complement to the gospel because it shows me and explains to me why I need the promise of Jesus. And this, this, this role of the law, it doesn't stop when we become Christians. Right? There is, I think, in Christian experience, an ongoing, what I call the spiral of maturity. All right? it's, it's this experience, this circle of experience that we need to keep going around as Christians. But as we do that, we're not just going around a circle. We're actually moving up a spiral and we're growing into our relationship with God. You see, even now, after all these years that we have been walking with Jesus, I think one of the things the law does is it keeps showing us our sin. You know, take, take an example. Well, mm, no, hang on, hang on. It keeps showing us our sin, which means what? It keeps driving us to Jesus. And it keeps showing us that our sin is worse than we think it is, so that we are pressed into our relationship with Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, those who are forgiven much, love much. And I wonder if one of the reasons that we perhaps don't, okay, one of the reasons I don't love Jesus in the way I know I ought is because I've not allowed the law to do this work. So my, my, I, my vision of my sin is quite superficial. My vision of what it is I have been forgiven of is quite small. And so my love for Jesus is small. And if, if I allowed the law to do its work in me, to really expose and show me the, 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 the awful reality of my sin. If I realize that, that my sin is massive and it is immense and that is what I have been forgiven of, then my love for Jesus would, would grow exponentially. And, and there's, this, there's this thing that goes on where we kind of have to grow into this. So we become Christians, so we trust the grace of Jesus. And, and what happens is we, we, we grow secure in that grace, and we grow confident in that grace, and we grow assured of that grace. But then something happens that shows us that actually our sin is worse than we thought it was. And so our, our awareness of our sin, the exposure of our sin, the aggravation of our sin, in a way that rises. And so what happens? It drives us back into the gospel, back into the grace and the love and the compassion of Christ. And we experience the fact that Jesus' grace is, is greater than we thought it was. No, actually, gosh, I, you know, my sin is worse than I thought it was, but I, I'm experiencing from Jesus a forgiveness and a mercy that is more than I thought it was. And then I grow to be secure and assured and confident 
in that level of experience of grace. But then something happens. And, you know, some sin that I thought I got rid of and had dealt with, bam, it's there. And, and the law has exposed and exacerbated and aggravated my sin. And I've, I've, I've realized that I'm still, I'm still, I'm still driven by it in so many ways. And what does that do? It drives me back into the gospel to experience a greater degree of grace and mercy and compassion. And you see how this cycle just keeps going around and around. So it's by confronting me increasingly with the immensity, the enormity, the horror of my own sinfulness that, that drives me deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and I'll, I promise you, I promise you this. You will never go so deep into the gospel that you find you have exhausted the grace that Jesus has for you. You see, it is only when we are secure in our relationship with Jesus that we can actually really begin to look our sin in the eye and see it for what it is. And we have to do that if we're ever going to repent of it, if we're ever going to be freed from it, if we're ever going to understand, I was going to say really understand, but I don't think we ever really understand. But if we're going to begin to grasp the enormity of the gospel and respond to Jesus with the love that ought to echo through every chamber of our soul. I'm going to stop there for tonight. But remember, this is just, I mean, man, if that, was, if that was the only answer Paul gives us in Galatians, that would be immense. But this is just series one, episode one. All right, this is just the first thing that Paul wants us to understand about the law. Why was the law given? It was added because of transgression. Because as we know our transgression, then we will know the depth of the promise that comes to us through Christ. Let's stand and let's sing of that grace, of that faithfulness, of that love that comes to us through the promise of Jesus.